the Mystery File Collective is intended for mature audiences. The following content may contain material that some people find triggering. If you feel disturbed by tales of murder, mystery, or myth, if you believe that they could traumatize you, we implore you to use your discretion before listening. Dreams are mysterious things. We have all had vivid, intense dreams living out whole chapters of our lives, being taken to places where whole years of life-affirming events have taken place, where we have fallen in love, got married, and lived happily ever after. In my dreams, I have gone to war and fought hard, bloody battles with strangers and yet not strangers, people I seem to know and care for, although I'm certain in real life I have never met them before. The narrative in dreams can span many years. I had one incredible dream once that was incredibly vivid and that I can remember in astonishing detail. In this dream, I set up a business and watched it flourish and then fall apart over many years. When in actual real time, this dream may have lasted just a few short minutes. Dreams make time bend. Dreams break the laws of time. Let me introduce you to the ancient art of aniromancy, a mystical form of prophecy, divination based on dreams. To this day, in many parts of the world, Shaman of tribes take anirogenic drugs to produce dream-like states of consciousness where they can witness and predict the future. Occasionally, the dreamer feels as if they are transported to another time or place, and this is offered as evidence that they are, in fact, providing divine information upon their return. Is it possible to sail on a dream into another dimension? Is it possible to witness the future in a dream? How does this work? Nobody truly knows. Dreams are mysterious often haunting our waking daylight hours. But can they be prophetic? 
can they come true? Is it possible to dream the future before it happens? Today's case will examine the mysterious young life of Michael Cody, who from the age of 12 would keep a diary of his extraordinary dreams. Dreams that witnessed real life events before they happened. But no ordinary events. For Michael Cody dreamt of murder. The child witnessed, or rather participated, in real-life murders before they happened, and he recorded these events in a carefully crafted diary, partly as directed by a child psychologist, and partly because nobody would believe the things that he dreamt, the stuff of nightmares that would come true. After all, he was just a 12-year-old boy. And I use the phrase participated in real-life murder very deliberately. Because Michael Cody would always dream from the point of view of the killer. He bound his victims, enjoying their terror. He did the strangling. He stuck in the knife enjoyed the feeling of it twisting gloriously through flesh, causing agony as it slashed its path. He saw everything, felt everything through the eyes of the killer, felt their emotions, delighted in the screams of the victim, exhilarated by the victim's fear-etched faces the terror in their eyes that always told of the moment when life left the body, as fear-filled eyes drifted delicately into a death-filled glaze. And these dreams of murder were much more than mere dreams. The horrors he witnessed more than a mere nightmare they were a glimpse of someone somewhere's death that he was somehow part of. And terrifyingly, these dreams were a prediction of the future that would always, always come true. So, as we examine the mysterious case of this 12-year-old boy from a small town in Oklahoma, we ask the question, why him? And how did this happen? How could a child of 12 witness such incredible horror? Why was he chosen? Let's start at the beginning, because the end may well bring night terrors to your sleep. It has mine. It was September 1973 when the first dream was visited upon him, a nightmare of unfathomable horror. 
a nightmare that would become recurring. The family that we have spoken to, including his fiancée, all wish to remain anonymous. The events of this case too upsetting for them to welcome too much scrutiny. The events surrounding what ultimately happened to Michael Cody. Too disturbing. To protect their anonymity, we would like to keep the precise location of where Michael Cody lived as a child secret. What we will say is that the family lived in a relatively small town in the state of Oklahoma. Michael Cody is the name of our subject and he was born in the mid-1960s. He comes from a typical Midwestern middle-class American family of that time. He had loving parents and a much-loved older sister, two years his senior, and all have chosen to remain nameless. Their anonymity is their decision, and we ask that you respect that. We will protect them as much as we can, and we thank them for their cooperation in agreeing that this is a story that needs to be told. So to begin, it all started with the number 803. At first, that is all Michael could dream. The number 803. The number slowly morphing into an event that Michael becomes totally immersed in. In this dream, it is early, morning time, the air crisp and cold, winter. Michael Cody stealthily makes the approach up to a small white house, and the number 803 is clear by the door in big black numbers. Eight, oh, three. His diary captures extraordinary detail. During the dream, Michael Cody feels exhilarated, excited, and yet fearful. He trembles with trepidation. He approaches the house stealthily, making use of the shadows that wrap up the morning light. He sneaks down the side of the house, pulling out a sharp knife, cutting the phone wire. He then pulls out a gun and begins to sneak stealthily. Oh, so stealthily, he moves around the side of the house, the small white house. He knows what he wants to do what the dream is telling him he must do. He knows. Torture. Kill. It is at this point young Michael Cody wakes up, hot, sweaty, disturbed, unsure of why his heart thumped in his chest so wildly, 
why he was so full of dread. He walked slowly through the darkness of his house, into his parents' room, heart banging. They wake with a start, and the twelve-year-old begins to cry. What's up, child? His mother asked, half-waking. Eight, oh, three, the twelve-year-old replied. Help the family. Help. Murder, he replied weakly. Alarmed, his father reached for the bedside light, whilst his mother scrambled out of bed to her son's aid. You've had a nightmare, darling. A nightmare. It's okay, she said, comforting him as best she could, taking him back to the bedroom, snapping the light on and tucking him in before going downstairs to make a warm glass of milk for her startled child. Back in his room alone, Michael noticed that the walls seemed to have a malleable quality, flexible as if they were moving. The numbers eight, oh, three, standing out in his mind's eye once more. He was half awake, half haunted by the vivid and confusing dream. His mother returned with a warm glass of milk, and slowly, Michael began to feel soothed. The feeling of dread, of foreboding, of yes, of evil that still lurked in the half-light was slowly passing away. He was waking up. The dream's intensity was finally leaving him. But little did he know, did they all know, that it would return. The nightmare in Michael Cody's life was just beginning. According to family members, it was a couple of months before the nightmare revisited young Michael Cody once more. The family remembered clearly because it was in the run-up to Christmas, December 1973. That night, the child's horror-filled screams turned his family's blood to ice. For this time, the dream went further. Much further. It started with a whispering voice inside the darkness of his head. Julie! Josephina! Julie! Josephina, began the whispering, and suddenly he was there again, inside the dream, outside the small white house. It was cold, so very cold, early morning winter, eight, oh, three, those numbers. Eight, oh, three. He entered the back. Oh, so nervous, sweating, gloved hand moist inside, shaking. At the back door, heart racing, excitement, anticipation. Suddenly the door opens. A man stands before him with a young boy, both Hispanic. The man is looking confused, 
narrowing his eyes, not aggressively, just confused. It's time. No going back now. He's inside the house, heart pounding, confusion all around him. His gun is raised. He can see their faces. There they are, the women. He knows their names. Julie, Josephine. She's 11. The reason he is here. He knows their ages. He studied them. He looks at the man before him, little boy at his side, younger than the girl, and there is a feeling of anxiety coupled with anger rising inside Michael Cody. He wasn't expecting him here. There is now a deep hesitation inside the intruder, inside young Michael Cody's dream. He's deciding what to do. The killer. Young Michael Cody's dream is telling him the killer is deciding what to do. He's here to kill them, but he could still run. He could still run away. The stakes feel really high now as the intruder takes in the family before him for one long moment. Julie, the mother, Hispanic, loose shoulder-length black hair, voluptuous, attractive. He came for her. He knows he came for her. Josephine, a child, innocent, so innocent. He came for her too. Young Michael Cody is seeing everything through the eyes of this intruder. He's feeling everything. In this dream, he is the intruder. He sees everything. He feels it all. The confusion, the fear, his heart beating in his chest, his breath shallow, aware of everything. Below him, a dog is barking frantically. There is panic inside. This isn't the plan. This isn't the plan. The feeling of losing control, twisting his gut, of it all being too much for him. Then something strange happens. Michael Cody's dream seems to segue sharply in tone and mood. The woman in the room suddenly softens, becomes very relaxed, loving, almost maternal. Her eyes no longer fearful, but smiling. She approaches the intruder. She presents him with a British Union flag. Here you go, sweetie. A little gift from England. Confused. Fearful Michael Cody doesn't understand this part of the dream. He is looking at the flag. The decorative boldness of the flag's red, white and blue standing out vividly. What does it mean? It's a union flag, the mother says. It's only called Jack when it's above a ship. Michael Cody squirmed in the shadows of his bed. This part of the dream didn't make sense. He remembers 
coming back into consciousness, almost waking up, seeing an escape from the nightmare and trying to wake up. Suddenly the dream snatched him back, clawing him back deep into its horrifying evil lair. And he was suddenly back there. Take our car and our money and go, the man says, arms in the air. The dog has gone from the house now. His heartbeat, though, is still rapid. Rapid, but slowing. Slowing. The killer is composing himself. He has made his decision. Take control. Gun raised. The family are ushered into a bedroom. Males lay on the floor. Females on the bed and all are tied. Arms and legs are bound. The family are compliant. They are bartering with this intruder. They believe that he will merely rob them. Steal their money and their car and leave. So they comply. The intruder hurriedly ties them with the cords that he has brought. Arms. Legs. Oh, the excitement. He now has control. His excitement is difficult to contain. Michael Cody is seeing it all through his eyes. He can feel it all. The things that he thinks, the glory of the moment, the fantasy so long imagined becoming reality. They all must die. They all will die and they will know it too. Before it happens, they will know that they will die. That's part of this excitement, part of the game, the fear that it will instill. The dream suddenly begins moving very fast now, and this will become a feature of Michael Cody's dreams to come. The intruder moves quickly to the man tied and bound on the floor of the bedroom. He places a plastic bag over the man's head and he pulls it down, tying it shut with a cord, then a belt, semi-strangulating him before callously standing back to watch the man writhe as he fights for life at his feet, the frenzied cavorting below him as he suffocates. The whole family can see this happening, they are witnessing it all, and pandemonium breaks out in the room at the full evil in view. Their husband and father is fighting for his life on the floor, tied and bound, cavorting this way and that on the ground, his face visibly changing colour through the plastic bag tied tightly over his head, fighting for his last breath, for his life. The children and his wife are witnessing the horror. They too are tied and bound and they begin to scream. The noise is so loud, too loud. The screams too alarming. And at this point, Michael Cody, seeing it all through the eyes of the killer, knows that they will all have to die quickly. He has to get control. The screaming is too much, too loud. It may alert someone outside. Moving quickly once more, the dreamer sees himself placing his hand around the woman's throat on the bed. He can see it all through his eyes. He can feel it all through his hands as he begins choking her. Her eyes are looking up at him, bulging, begging, horror-filled. 
The girl tied next to her on the bed is watching. She's crying. Tears flowing as the intruder is strangulating. I love you, mummy. She whispers as her mother's eyes finally roll back and close, her consciousness finally slipping away. The intruder narrows his eyes as he turns to the terrified girl on the bed and laughs. He is the purest, most despicable evil. On the floor below the bed, the struggling has stopped. The father of the house is dead and just the sobbing of the boy can be heard. The mother is dead. The dreamer's eyes, the eyes of the killer, focus upon the girl. At this moment, young Michael wakes. He is screaming, an ungodly scream that wakes the whole house. His mother and father, his sister, it is a scream that they all agree they will never, ever forget. Lights quickly come on from bedrooms, punching holes in the darkness. Michael Cody's mother runs to her child. His chest is tight and he's wheezing. He's sobbing, eyes filled with horror, half awake, half asleep buffeted by the shockwaves of the hideous dream. Murder, mommy. Murder. You're dreaming, darling. She holds him as she shakes, stroking his hair and whispering, It's okay, Michael. It's okay. Mama's here. Mama's here. The repetition and softness of her voice now begins to soothe. Do you want to tell me about your dream? Michael Cody shook his head. Murder, mommy, was all that he could say. The child was shaking from head to toe. He felt sick. Deep inside his core, he hated himself. He felt disgusted. Disgusted with what he believed were his own actions in the dream. The eyes that looked at him, that pleaded with him, that feared him. The accusing eyes seemed to stare at him from the shadows of his own bedroom. His mum holds him for what feels like hours. Michael Cody breathed out heavily, held his breath. Breathe in heavily and out again, as instructed by his mum. It takes a long time, but eventually, sleep claims the child once more. The next morning at breakfast, Michael Coley's mother was watching her son closely, studying him. These night terrors he was having recently were escalating. She wondered what deep psychological issues her son might be struggling with for his anxieties to play out so violently in his sleep. Across the breakfast table, Michael seemed vacant, lost in his thoughts. 
When she caught his gaze, his eyes became furtive, looking away as if he was embarrassed or ashamed. She had never seen this in her son before. Shame was something that didn't live inside her son. He was a confident young man, outgoing with a natural, couldn't care less, joy de vivre. He loved life. She asked gently, if he would like to stay off school today because he could if he wanted to. In fact, she thought that he should. He must be tired. But the boy just shook his head silently. She asked again if he wanted to talk about last night, eager to learn more about the details of the nightmare, those words thinly spoken. Murder, mummy, murder, haunting her. Michael Cody's gaze drifted to the middle distance, as he once more remembered the plastic bag going over the Hispanic man's head, his arms and legs bound, the screams of terror from the rest of the family as they witnessed the struggle, his fight for life, the father of the family dying helplessly before them. In a flash, he suddenly saw once more the Union Jack presented to him in a segue of the dream, presented with the words, A present from London, sweetie. Suddenly, this all appeared strong in his mind's eye. That didn't make any sense. The Union flag. Why the Union flag? Michael Cody snapped too. He was back in his kitchen, looking up at his concerned mother, looking at him from across the breakfast table. No, Mom, it was just a dream, just a nightmare, he said, attempting a thin smile, sadness filling his gaze. She returned an unconvincing smile back to her son. She knew he was troubled. She could see the nightmare's effect reverberating inside him, even now at breakfast in the cold light of day. But what should she do? She was powerless to stop a dream of any description hijacking her young boy's sleep. But her most troubling question still bothered her. Why was her son having such night terrors? They were soon joined at the breakfast table, as usual, by Michael Cody's sister, two years his senior, and his father, neither of whom mentioned the events of the night before. In fact, from that moment, nobody said anything at all. The atmosphere was tense and silent, everyone's eyes shifting every now and then to the boy whose screams had woken the house last night, whose screams had turned their blood to ice. Once breakfast had finished, Mom pulled Michael's sister aside and she whispered quietly, Keep an eye on Michael today, honey, before smiling reassuringly. His sister smiled back, warmly welcoming the responsibility gifted from her mum. She then turned and grabbed her younger brother's hand and they headed off to school to slip into the rhythm of a normal day and maybe that was a good thing, thought his mum. 
Maybe that was what he needed after all. Some normality. At school, Michael Cody was a popular child, liked by both teachers and pupils for his confidence and outgoing nature. The Codys were a relatively big family in the area, and he had nine cousins in the same school, all likeable, outgoing, confident children. However, that day, Michael was notably withdrawn. So much so, his English teacher, Gerald Bryars, asked him to wait after class to ask him if he was okay. He seemed a little withdrawn. Was there anything troubling him? Nothing at all, sir. I'm fine, was his reply. But this somehow didn't convince. The teacher would be keeping an eye on him, his instincts telling him something was wrong. At home, when Michael's father returned from work that evening, his mother pulled him to one side to express concern about her boy. These dreams recently were very affecting. Maybe he was having problems. Maybe he should talk to someone. Someone professional. But Michael's father didn't think anything so dramatic need happen. The boy has had a few bad dreams. Nothing more. We all get them from time to time, don't we? Bad dreams. And, reassuringly, there were no more nightmares that night for Michael. No more nightmares for what was left of that year for the boy. At least none that he ever spoke about. Christmas 1973 came and went. And a bright new year, 1974, began. But with it, came evil. On the evening of Monday the 14th of January 1974, Michael's aunt returned from a Christmas vacation to Europe. Michael was upstairs in his bedroom, happily reading, when he heard the door go and his mum answer, ushering her younger sister in with big hugs and smiles. The sound of the warm greeting between his mum and auntie travelling upstairs. Michael jumped out of bed and raced to the top of the stairs to greet his aunt. She noticed Michael and looked up from the foot of the stairs directly to him. Big beaming smile painted across her face. Warm. Maternal. Her hand, concealed behind her back, suddenly snapped forward to produce with dramatic effect his present from a far-flung land, from Europe. She was waving a flag. A British flag. Here you go, sweetie. A little gift from England. Michael suddenly remembered the flag from his dream with the message. Here you go, sweetie. A little gift from England. It was the exact same flag from his hideous, murderous dream. 
presented with those exact same words. Michael's blood turned to ice. What did it mean? Did it mean his auntie was about to be murdered? Would he do the killing in this dream? Was he about to murder his aunt? He didn't understand. Part of his hideous dream was coming true. It's a union flag. It's only called Jack when it's above a ship. His auntie was now saying, smiling up at him, exactly as the Hispanic woman had done in the dream, just before he murdered her. The young child's head began to spin. No, it can't be true. In his mind's eye, he could suddenly see before him the Hispanic lady's face from the nightmare. His auntie was no longer at the foot of the stairs below him, but the lady he murdered, the one he had strangled, his dream's vividness suddenly returning. It was becoming real. Michael let out a horror-filled scream. This uncontrollable rush of heat rose Vesuvian-like from his body, up to his face. He vomited, swiftly followed by a rising black tide. Michael Cody fainted. The flag from his aunt would be what Michael would later describe as the first token. And his prophetic dreams, the dreams that would come true, would each have one of these foreboding tokens. Items that would present themselves in a segue of his dream to one day eventually meet him in his waking hours. And so it was. The next day it happened. The 15th of January 1974. Michael Cody arrived home from school. He raced to the fridge as he always did, a daily competition between him and his sister. And she was always happy to let him win, because a jubilant Michael would, nine times out of ten, pour a glass of milk not just for himself, but he would pour one for her too. And so it was on that day. That is, as his sister remembers. Michael had won the race to the fridge and got them both a glass of milk crowing as he usually did with his victory. They switched on the television and began flicking through the stations. But wait, stop. He recognized something on a news channel, a house, a familiar white house. The number eight, oh, three. The house from his nightmares. There were images of the slain. The man, Mr. Joseph Otero, 38 years old. The boy, his son, Joseph Junior Otero, just nine years old. 
The woman, named as Julie Otero, 33 years, and the little girl, named as Josephine Otero, aged 11, all dead, murdered. On screen was an image of the house where the homicides had taken place. He had seen all this before. Witnessed the evil that had visited this family some weeks before. And in the dream, he saw everything, felt everything through the eyes of the killer. He had dreamt these murders, and in that dream, he himself had been the bringer of evil to this family, in a dream that had happened weeks previous. The nightmare of nightmares had come true, his eyes filled with tears, and silently he began to weep. His mum arrived home to find his sister comforting her younger brother in his bedroom, her young son uncontrollably weeping on his bed. His sister couldn't find the words to explain until the young boy finally spoke. I kill those people, Ma. The Oteros. I killed them in my dream. That evening, Michael Cody's family struggled to take in the gravity of the situation. This was a happy household. They listened and respected each other. Once the children were asleep in bed, their parents talked it through as they struggled to understand exactly what was happening. A very rare argument ensued as they remember. Michael Cody's father didn't believe that what his son was saying he had actually witnessed in his dreams weeks before the actual real event was true. It couldn't be true. It wasn't possible. And yet, he knew his son wasn't prone to fantasy. He was a well-grounded child, and he believed him to be truthful. He wasn't a liar. Sitting in front of yet another rerun of a news report of the Otero family murders, he simply refused to see how his 12-year-old son could have dreamt the killings weeks before they happened. It wasn't possible. The only explanation was that he dreamt something akin to it, but not the same. And his son had fitted in the detail after seeing it on the news. Maybe not deliberately, but the two things, the nightmare and the news report of the murders, had fused somehow in his understanding and created a false memory. His wife, however, believed her child. She couldn't explain how it was a true thing, but she genuinely believed that he had had a true vision of murder. The conversation escalated into a row, not unpleasant as they remember, but they were both upset. 
and Michael Cody's father ultimately took himself off to bed early, refusing to discuss ideas of supernatural dreams, or that their son had a psychic premonition of murder, murders that had come true. It was frankly preposterous. Some hours later, his wife joined him in bed. She wanted him to help her, to help their son. And the only way they could do that would be to talk to someone, their family doctor or a child psychologist, even the police, someone, anyone. Reluctantly, he agreed arranging swiftly for a meeting that week. The sooner the better, while it was all still fresh in Michael's young mind. He would be happy for his son to see a child psychologist that could help, as he put it, settle the boy down. And so it was. Just two days later, the family met child psychologist Dr. Henry Levington, he was a very well-respected doctor in his field. He was warm and welcoming to Michael and set him up in a room on his own with lots of toys to occupy him while he interviewed his mother. He was fascinated to hear the boy's story from Mrs. Cody. He listened thoughtfully. The nightmares had somehow changed their child, making him more withdrawn and introspective. She described the incident with the British flag and how her child had somehow witnessed this gift-giving moment previously in his murderous dream. And this gift of a British flag took place in real life on the eve of the Otero family murder. Almost as if it was a signal that the dream was about to come true. And was it possible for dreams to come true? Was it possible for her child to witness a murder in a dream? Dr. Levington seemed to think for a moment. He wasn't inclined to trust ideas of the supernatural. Although he admitted that the mind was an incredible thing. And beyond this, the brain itself incredibly complex, a lot of it lying dormant for reasons nobody understands. And children's brains are the most complex of all as they are still developing. Many children see and hear things others can't see quite frequently. Imaginary friends, stories of inherited memory, reincarnation stories that are full of astonishingly accurate detail. And nobody can explain any of it at all. Certainly not in a way that would satisfy the rational mind. He smiled warmly. Mrs. Cody very at ease in the company of this man who began to ask searching questions. Had the child suffered any trauma, emotional or physical? Not that she knew of. Did he have a difficult birth? No, 
He was a second child. He was a short labour and easy birth. Had he had any issues before with anxiety or phobias of any kind at any point in his life? Not that she knew of. Satisfied, he invited young Michael Cody into the room. They both warmly settled the boy down, his mother holding his hand while Dr. Levinson asked the child if he could recount what the dream was, what he could remember, making clear at any point that if he felt distressed, he could stop. Michael nodded silently before taking a moment. It began with the number, the house number, 803, Michael began. Although I didn't know it was the house number at the time, it was just the number, 803, and the doctor listened patiently to the child's perspective on the dream. Largely, the boy was emotionless throughout the retelling of the dream. Nothing felt embellished. Short, matter-of-fact sentences. The doctor listened intensely to Michael Cody. The case was fascinating, telling the tale in the simplest terms from the point of view of the killer. And this is what fascinated Dr. Levington most of all. The child is the killer. The child is the murderer. Although this is impossible as the boy lives hundreds of miles away and doesn't have the strength to commit such crimes. But disturbingly, the child seemed to have an insight into the mindset of the killer. He shouldn't know what murder is, let alone what it feels like. Not at the age of 12. What could this mean? What was it saying about young Michael Cody? To inhabit the responsibility of such murders at any age would suggest a deep-seated self-loathing, an inherent uncontrollable latent rage. Nothing that you would imagine could sit inside the mind of a child, a 12-year-old boy from a typical middle-class American family. Was this a simple story of a nightmare fusing with a 12-year-old's exposure to a hideous news report? His subconscious mixing the two together to create an extraordinary false memory. Hand on heart. Dr. Levington didn't know. He really didn't. He resolved to see the child again, but before he left, Dr. Levington handed the child an empty, leather-bound notebook, a diary, and he told the child that he would like him to keep a pen by the side of the bed and record any dreams of murder Write it all down. Record it in the book. It would be a dream diary. And his job was to capture as much detail as possible. With dates of what, 
and when they happened. And Dr. Levington quickly added that he would like him to start with the original dream. Write down as much as you remember. The boy agreed, nodding silently. Write down as much as you remember from the nightmare of the Otero family. Write it down, and then forget about it. Let the diary have the memory, then the diary owns it. You can forget about it. It's gone. He winked at Michael Cody, and he noted a deep-seated sadness in the child's eyes. What the boy had experienced had felt real enough, certainly to the child. With this, he asked the boy to wait for a few short moments in the toy room while he spoke to his mother. Michael Cody agreed, and once the child was out of the room and safely out of earshot, Dr. Levington asked his mother if she had spoken to the police at all. She hadn't and was horrified at the thought. The boy had been through enough. He feels guilty and responsible enough without the trauma of speaking to a police officer. Dr. Levinson agreed, but there was something about the way in which the child had recalled the story of his nightmare without embellishment, so matter-of-fact and honest, that the doctor, despite being a man of rich experience, absolutely believed. He asked Mrs. Cody if she was okay with the dream diary and would she be okay to see him again with her child. Yes, she would, she said. But was her child okay? Did he dream those murders for real before they happened? Not possible, the doctor replied but he was very interested in understanding why a child of 12 was having such nightmares. Too horrific for such a young age. Mrs. Cody left Dr. Henry Levinson's feeling like she had an ally. She liked the idea of the dream diary. She would help her boy record whatever detail he needed to from wherever horrific nightmares may come. And it didn't take long for young Michael Cody to have his second prophetic nightmare of murder.